Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second in our new series of Norton Rose Fulbright Financial Services podcasts, which we are calling EMEA Touchpoints, where financial services partners and associates in our EMEA offices discuss what they are seeing in their local market. My name is Simon Lovegrove, Global Director of Financial Services Knowledge, and for this podcast, we will be covering developments in the UAE. And for this, I'm very pleased to be joined by Matthew Shanahan and Hassan Ali Peerby, a partner and associate respectively in our Dubai office. Welcome to both of you. For today's podcast, I wanted to start with money laundering, something which is very topical in the UAE. First, perhaps you could both give our listeners a brief update on anti-money laundering enforcement action in the region. And perhaps, Matt, you can go first. Thank you very much, Simon. Um, So uh, the UAE has been on uh, financial action task force, so-called grey list, since March 2022. Um, So being on the grey list means the UAE is subject to what's called increased monitoring. FATF's main concern with the UAE and why it's on the the grey list is around the effectiveness uh, of the UAE regime, um, in particular, uh, enforcement of its regime. And secondly, there's a perception of a a lack of international cooperation. Um, Because of the reputational risks and the costs associated with being on the grey list, the UAE has been working very hard to ensure that it's removed from the grey list um, as quickly as, as possible. There's a general sort of determination at the highest levels, particularly in the relevant ministries, uh, for the country to get off the list. Um, and the financial services regulators in the UAE have uh, been given very strict instructions to take enforcement action on AML deficiencies uh, in their regulated firms, which include both uh, financial institutions and uh, DNFTBs. Um, but so the outcome of that sort of uh, fairly uh, vigorous regulatory focus, uh, I'll ask has to describe. Thanks, Matt. We've seen quite a number of enforcement actions uh, regarding AML happening throughout the UAE. And just a quick run through, in the uh, Dubai International Financial Center, the DIFC, the regulator over there, the Dubai Financial Service Authority, has been pretty active with uh, AML fines. Recently, they fined a uh, Swiss bank just over three million US dollars uh, for AML systems control failings. They fined a uh, large Asian bank just over one million US dollars for AML systems and controls failings. Um, and they've not stopped there. They've also gone for a uh, watch dealer in the DIFC for not registering as a designated non-financial. Uh, business person, they find the watch dealer thirty-six thousand U.S. dollars, and they also recently find a uh, the legal arm of an accountancy firm around eight thousand four hundred U.S. dollars for not filing an AML return within uh, the set deadline. Over in Abu Dhabi, uh, in the Abu Dhabi Global Markets (ADGM), the financial services regulator over there, the FSRA, uh, Financial Services Regulatory Authority, have fined two uh, payment services providers um, between uh, 300 to just over 400,000 US dollars uh, for AML systems and controls failings again. 
and the UAE Central Bank has also been pretty active. They've taken action against around 11 banks so far, as well as exchange houses where they've canceled licenses of two exchange houses. And this is a trend we expect to continue. Okay, thanks, Hass. Um, very interesting. Uh, for my second question, I just want to do a deeper dive on the comments that Matt made a moment ago regarding the Financial Action Task Force evaluation of the UAE and it being placed on the so-called grey list. I noted in the summer we saw a FATF uh, report addressing the UAE's progress in improving its compliance with the FATF standards, indicating that various enhancements to the AML had regime had been made. Um, Matt, could you just make some further comments on this important issue? Yeah, sure, Simon. So look, uh, before I get to that, I, just very quickly, I, I, the way we see this is we expect this to trend on enforcement action to continue until the UAE is removed from the list. And, and I just wanted to touch very briefly, Simon, on, on, on international cooperation, because um, that was one of the criticisms that Fatef made. Um, and on, on that front, the UAE has stepped up efforts to assist on, on sort of cross-border, um, on tackling cross-border crime. They've arrested a number of very high-profile suspects in the last couple of years, um, and they've uh, they've extradited a number of, of, of criminal suspects as well. Uh, they, they also, for example, have entered into extradition treaties with a number of, of, of countries, including the UK. So that, that's a fairly positive sign. So with that background and all the, the sort of enforcement action that's being taken and this increase in international cooperation, um, it's very interesting to, to look at the recent FATF, um, the outcome of the recent FATF plenary, which was published in June, um, when FATF reported on um, progress of all the grey list countries. So um, it generally gives a very good insight into how FATF perceives the UAE's progress on AML and on whether the UAE is likely to be removed from the greatest. And, um, you know, FATF made some very positive noises about the UAE. In particular, it said the UAE demonstrated significant progress, including by enhancing and maintaining a shared understanding of the money laundering and terrorist finance risks between the different sectors, including DNFBPs and, and, and financial institutions and it, in ensuring a more granular understanding of the risk of abuse of legal persons and legal arrangements. So that, that was the sort of positive messaging. But um, it also noted that, um, that, that UA should continue to work uh, its, its uh, implementation uh, of its FATF action plan. And it, it, it gave three areas where it wants to see continued work. The first is in demonstrating an increase in the application of effective propor proportionate and dissuasive sanctions for both financial institutions and DNFEBs for non-compliance with the AML CF, uh, CFT requirements. Uh, they also want to see that the, that the uh, DNFEBs are, that that sector is implementing risk-based CBD um, and showing an increase in the number and quality of, of STRs that are being filed by both financial institutions and DNFEBs. That's always been an issue in the UAE. Is, is, is that the, you know, the, there tends to be a low number of STRs in the file. The second point they want to see sustained increase in the issuance of dissuasive, effective, and proportionate sanctions for breaches of beneficial ownership obligations. And then finally, the third area that they want to see uh, further action is in demonstrating a sustained increase in, in effective investigations and prosecutions of different types of money laundering cases. And as they said, consistent with the UAE's risk profile. So on that front, they want to see the police and other 
regulatory authorities taking actual uh, action for from in money laundering cases. So to, to me, this indicates that it may be a little longer before the UAE is, is off the gray list. Um, but more importantly for uh, our clients and, and, and for financial institutions in particular in the region, it's likely that uh, both investigations, enforcement actions, and of course, the, the, the ensuing sanctions are likely to continue for the foreseeable future. Okay, thanks, Matt. That's very helpful and very, very interesting. I now just want to move away from anti-money laundering. Obviously, ESG is another big issue in the region. The 28th United Nations Climate Change Conference, more commonly known as COP28, will be held from November the 30th until December the 12th this year at the Expo City in Dubai. I just wanted to touch on the Dubai Sustainable Finance Working Group, which seeks to promote sustainable practices and investments in Dubai and the DIFC. Uh, I know that recently the working group has issued a new consultation. Uh, Hass, can you briefly cover this consultation for us? Of course. Um, the, by way of background, the Sustainable Finance Working Group is made up of the main key regulators in the UAE. That includes the DFSA, the FSRA from the ADGM, the Central Bank, and the onshore regulator known as the ESCA, or the Securities and Commodities Authority. Now, when the uh, Sustainable Finance Working Group was set up, they had a roadmap with three main deliverables. And those deliverables are disclosure, governance, and taxonomy. And the recent consultation paper that they released uh, just a couple of weeks ago uh, focused on the first of those uh, deliverables, which is disclosure. In this consultation paper, the Sustainable Finance Working Group have set out four principles that will treat as a minimum guidance for disclosure frameworks for sustainability. These broadly align with the IFRS regulations for disclosure uh, sustainability-related financial information. I'm going through those four pillars now. The first one, uh, policies, procedures, and systems. Uh, in short, what they expect is that entities put in place internal reporting systems to monitor and report on material sustainability-related risks. And they also expect uh, timely reports of data and information, both at a board level and to the public. The second principle, sustainability-related risks and opportunities. This requires that companies uh, identify various factors uh, to consider when making sustainability-related disclosures. And the idea is that these factors um, provide a roadmap for consistency in reporting, which ties into the third pillar, minimum disclosure requirements for sustainability-related disclosures. Um, this sets out four, four pillars for disclosure and information that is expected to be disclosed. Uh, and these really mirror the exact pillars that are in, are in the IFRS 1 um, document. And these four pillars are governance, strategy, risk management, and metric and targets. The fourth and final pillar is the concept of dealing with and offering sustainability-related products. 
And this really just sets out factors that need to be considered when offering such products. These factors range from things like naming, labeling, classification, uh, marketing materials. The real idea here is to avoid greenwashing and that really sending out a clear message that they want to avoid misrepresenting sustainability-related features of products. Um, this is only their first deliverable in this consultation paper, and we're definitely going to expect more action both during and after the COP28 conference. Okay, thanks. Um, I just now want to turn to funds promotion, particularly as the UAE has become an important fund center. Uh, Matt, I think you wanted to mention some important developments. Thanks, Simon. So I think for foreign fund managers and, and, and distributors of foreign funds, the UAE has generally been a fairly friendly jurisdiction which to market funds. Uh, there's been a general exemption for marketing to what are called professional investors, uh, it, which has been in place for some time. However, in January, uh, rather out of the blue, the, uh, the local securities regulator, the Securities and Commodities Authority, closed the door almost entirely on the marketing of foreign funds in the UAE. Uh, since January, the only available exemptions for promoting foreign funds in the UAE um, are, to, uh, are for promotions to government-owned entities, such as sovereign wealth funds, uh, and for what's generally known as reverse solicitation promotion. So, so promoting on the basis of a person who's requested to be promoted to. But the aim of the changes from a policy perspective is to help UAE develop a domestic funds industry. Um, which is still rather small and, and lacks any debt outside the two financial free zones. Um, so, so this has been a big change, and, and um, uh, financial institutions, you know, fund promoters, fund distributors have had to adapt. There are some workarounds for foreign fund promotion, such as setting up in the DIFC or or, or the ADGM and, and, and passporting into the UAE. Uh, and also creating a feeder funds in the UAE, but, but ultimately the, the industry is in readjustment mode. Um, it hasn't landed on a particular solution, but, but we'll see how things evolve as they adapt to the new rules. Okay, thanks, Matt. Certainly one to keep an eye out for. Um, I don't think any regulatory update from the UAE would be complete without mentioning crypto assets. Uh, Dubai's Virtual Assets Regulatory Authority, otherwise known as VARA, has recently introduced two significant updates to its virtual assets regulatory framework, which is relevant to all entities providing services to or from Dubai, other than entities conducting business in the DIFC. Now, the two updates involve changes to VARA's custody services rulebook and also the virtual asset issuance rulebook. And these represent key developments for entities carrying out virtual asset activities under VARA's evolving regulatory regime. Ahas, can you tell our listeners more? Now, for those who are not aware, VARA is uh, quite distinct from other financial services regulators in that VARA is a crypto-only regulator, and they're just over one and a half years old now, and they're still uh, publishing changes to their rules and framework to closely align themselves with what is a very fast evolving crypto industry. The two uh, recent updates that rules involve uh, changes in respect of custody staking and uh, issuing virtual assets. And I'll run through each of these for you. 
Now, staking, uh, the concept of staking is a process of locking up your virtual assets into a particular smart contract in return for a percentage annualized return. I like to think of it a bit like a fixed deposit where you've locked your money away and you're getting some return. Uh, the reason you, that you do that in crypto is to allow you to participate in proof of stake uh, cryptocurrencies or protocols without, I suppose, trading actual virtual assets. Now, if you want to carry out staking with the VARA, you would normally have to apply for a license to carry out management and investment activities. The new change that VARA has made is that if you have just a custody license, you are able to carry out staking from that license without having to apply for a management and investment license. There's a particular route for you there. Um, this doesn't mean that if you have a custody license, you automatically have the right to carry out staking. Rather, you need to go to the VARA and say, we'd like to carry out these activities and there are certain requirements to be met, and these requirements are quite detailed regarding the, uh, for instance, the, the, the distributed ledger technology used, the standards for permitting particular staking, uh, uh, staking products, and the like. The second change uh, is on uh, issuance. Now, VARA, when, the, when they issued their uh, rulebook, this did not touch much on stable coins. What they've done now is, in an amendment to their issuance rulebook, is they've made an amendment for non-AED, that's dirham, non-dirham-backed stablecoins. If you want to issue a non-dirham-backed stablecoins, you can do so under a VA issuance license, and you would usually fall under one of two categories within the VA issuance license. Category one. Uh, uh, is for fiat-referenced uh, virtual assets, i.e. stablecoins, which do not have legal tender status in any jurisdiction. Second category, category two, is for stablecoins that do not fit in category one, but also have very specific criteria linked to it. And these criteria uh, touch on the transaction value, number of offerees, and a particular period of, issu of, of issuance. So if you fall into one of these two categories, you can issue um, stable coins from, uh, the, uh, from Dubai under a VARA license. Okay, thanks, Hass. Um, before we end this podcast, um, Matt, I also think you wanted to mention um, developments concerning the senior managers regime. Yeah, thanks, Simon. So UAE doesn't currently have a sort of targeted senior manager regime like the UK does, for example. Um, although key roles uh, in financial institutions generally need regulatory approval, ultimately, with, with a few exceptions, it's, uh, it's, it's firms, not their senior managers, who are generally the targets of, of regulatory enforcement action in the UAE. Um, recently, however, we've seen an increasing number of enforcement actions, particularly in the UAE's financial free zones, which have directly targeted senior managers. This is particularly the case in the Dubai International Financial Center, where the regulator, the DFSA, has said publicly that it will be focusing on senior management accountability. It is doing this with a view to improving 
firm's uh, compliance culture. So, you know, this is just a sort of general, general warning, uh, particularly for CEOs in the DIFC, they need to be much more aware of their responsibilities as CEOs and their duty to, uh, and their ultimate responsibility for the, the sort of compliance culture and potentially for breaches by the firm. So certainly one to keep an eye on. Thanks, Mayor. Um, that's a very important point to, to finish this podcast on. So my thanks to Matt and Haas for sharing their thoughts on the latest regulatory developments in the UAE. Uh, many thanks for listening to this podcast. Goodbye.